Welcome to MCS Pentecost, Pentecostal podcasts about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecosts are produced by Masters College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Peter Newman, Assistant Academic Dean of Masters Pentecostal Bible College. In this Pentecostal podcast, we are talking to a Pentecostal scholar who has taken a fresh approach to the book of Ephesians. I'm Dr. Van Johnson, and this is conversation with Reverend Luch Lombardi, who is the Director of Leadership Development and Distance Education at Master's College in Peterborough. Luch has been on staff there for 12 years, teaching primarily New Testament and theology, And what brings us to this table today is a published commentary of his, just published this year by Guardian Books, A New Humanity, subtitled, A Walk Through the Letter of Ephesians. This session is being recorded in Toronto at Masters Pentecostal Studios, April 25, 2014. So I'm looking across the table here at a Pentecostal who has written a commentary on Ephesians. This is not a traditional uh, book that Pentecostals often look at. So for your first published commentary, you've got 27 books in the New Testament to choose from. Tell me why you chose Ephesians. Well, I chose Ephesians because it seems to be the letter that uh, has scared us off, so to speak. I know that when you open the letter of Ephesians and you start reading chapter 1, you get into the predestination language. And right. as Pentecostals, we uh, it scares us off. Right. It, right. We don't compute. We don't live in that, that system. And um, I approached the letter from a totally different perspective. I, I just felt that there's something here that's important that we're missing. And I'm obviously borrowing from the perspective of others. Others feel that Ephesians is Paul's big picture letter, even more so than Romans. Romans is where he is addressing a distinct church issue, wanting to make uh, the church in Rome his base as he was going to branch out into Spain. So there was some problems there. He had heard about them. He knew about it because he names about 20-some-odd people at the end of the letter. Mm-hmm. So obviously he's heard. Mm-hmm. So we know that Paul's talking to a specific audience. But when you read Ephesians, yeah. you realize that the only other person he mentions is, is Tychicus. So you get the impression that this is a broader letter. Mm-hmm. And when you read the first pages, first chapter of my book, I point out the fact that Paul didn't have to address an issue here. He actually dives right into some of the largest thoughts you're ever going to read, biblically, about God. And so that that's intriguing to me. And to think that we've missed right. that because we've let the predestination right. language scare us right. says to me, as Pentecostals, we need to revive this letter for for ourselves uh, and, and our framework. So... Gotcha. Well, that's that's uh, is very intriguing. Uh, you're right. You don't get very far into Ephesians before you read. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. 
where uh, I am going to ask you where sometimes the Pentecostal debate has swirled um, is later in the letter. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a Pentecostal book, but Pentecostals will often go to the shortest of Paul's gift lists, and you only have a few. You have a couple in 1 Corinthians 12, you've got that one in Romans 12, and uh, as we were just discussing a few moments ago before we hit the record button, none of those lists are complete. Uh, mm -hmm. They seem to be more examples than they are uh, a systematic compilation of every gift Paul can think of. Mm -hmm. But in Ephesians, you've got you've got five, some say four, mm -hmm. gifts associated with leadership, and so uh, there's a whole debate out there. But my impression is that uh, your interest in Ephesians was not to solve the debate. The debate, of course, and this comes up in graduate classrooms all the time, is if we are a restorationist movement as Pentecostals, does that mean that we still have some work to do? We have restored, uh, we have restored a new sensitivity to the Spirit. We have restored... Speaking in tongues, we have restored spiritual gifts as normative. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are some that are thinking that the Pentecostals should finish the work now and restore what are sometimes referred to as the fivefold offices of the church, which, which is not Pauline language, and it's certainly not language from Ephesians. But mm -hmm. that's not what drew you to this text, right? Trying to figure out who the apostles are and whether they're still current or the prophets. Mm -hmm evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But that's not what drew you into Ephesians either. No, no. So, did you take that on in this commentary, or did you take a completely different approach to that gift list in uh, Ephesians 4.11? Yeah, I took, I took a different approach. I, to, be, to be really honest with you, I, I just didn't factor the whole fivefold thing has never factored in for me. I just think that it's an attempt at trying to read into Paul systems, which I think Paul will always break them down for us because when he does his lists, and I mentioned this to you earlier, when Paul does his lists of anything, they're never the same twice. All right. And I think Paul has a much more organic, open consideration of, of this than we do. We try to kind of all fit and compartmentalize it. So I don't, I don't think Paul is promoting a five-fold thing here as much as he's trying to distinguish how different leadership in the church, uh, particularly I refer to the church as God's community in the book, uh, is different from the culture. So if this is Paul's right. last letter that he writes, one of the last, probably the last, and it has all these large thoughts. I mean, you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, and what you get is this immense vision of what God is doing. Right, right. That God had thought this through even before He ever started creating. That um, you know, as as I've, I've heard some friends say, we were we were chosen in Adam. Uh, we were we were chosen in Christ before we ever fell in Adam. Uh, sort of motif there. Okay. That what Paul is really doing here is is he's establishing a competing story. He's responding, in in a certain sense, by reminding Christians at large, in the early first century, 
of the all-encompassing story that they've been collected in, in terms of their relationship with God. So in light of that, when I look at Paul talking about leadership in Ephesians, mm -hmm. he's identifying what are familiar categories that yep. would have been familiar to them yep. that show that leadership in God's community gives as opposed to the leaders of the Roman Empire that take. And there's this whole, if, okay. you, if, if you read closely to what Paul says in chapters 4 and 5, there is this whole um, back and forth about giving and taking. Don't be like, don't be like, in my, my translation of, of, of the letter, don't be like the outsiders, don't be like the Gentiles who aren't close to God and don't behave consistently in terms of people that have a relationship with Him. He's definitely marking out a contrast, which I think comes out clearly in Ephesians. So, uh, it just it just didn't factor for me. Yep, then no, it, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, I don't. Uh, I I don't even want to say it didn't make sense. It just didn't factor in for me. I, I wanted to pay close attention to pro, uh, Paul's broad perspective, his broad vision here that he carries on, trying to define who God is in our lives by characterizing what we've been called to be as His community. Okay, so I've been taking some uh, notes and some things I want to come back to, but let's let's go back to the beginning now again. Mm -hmm. So you're choosing Ephesians, and it's not because of uh, an agenda by some in the Pentecostal world to mm -hmm. want to look at the fivefold, mm -hmm. and it's to get beyond the Calvinistic approach that scares us away. So you're not coming from a reform perspective and you're not intentionally trying to come at it from uh, a Pentecostal perspective. Right. So what perspective are you bringing to this commentary? How are you trying to approach it? Yeah. Well, I, I've never been satisfied with the reform frameworks. Um, and I know historically in the, in the Pentecostal education I received there always seemed to be this uh, discontinuity between the systematic reform theology we were taught and our Pentecostal experience theology on the other side. And I, okay. and I was so dissatisfied with that that I realized there's got to be something else that could work as a framework that could help us as Pentecostals read the Bible and see our experience fresh in it. And what I've done is I've gone pre-Calvin. I've gone... I've gone pre-Reformation, I've gone back to the Trinitarian framework that the early fathers worked through. And when I see what those fathers did, it brings to me uh, what Paul writes in a much more fresh, alive way that really uh, intersects with our Pentecostal experience and our emphasis on the Spirit. And I've been able to actually see the continuity better that way than what I had been taught. And I approached Ephesians that way. Okay, so this is very interesting. So, go back to the earliest commentators on the text that we have, the early church, and um, draw from them, which of course gets us away from the whole modern period where the camps start dividing based on the Reformation and uh, the Reformed tradition emerging. Right. Okay, so this is very intriguing. Mm -hmm. uh, 
is this for uh, is this for the the typical um, enthusiastic scholar to be? Is this is this something that uh, can be used in small groups? Mm -hmm. um, who's who's this for? Who should be reading this? Well, it, it, it's interesting you ask that because I had a real specific purpose in writing it. When you pick up the book, you'll notice that all the all the kind of technical references um, that kind of give you an open uh, view to my mind as I was working these concepts through. You're going to find all that in the endnotes. Okay. Uh, in the okay. body in the body okay. of the book, what I wanted to do was just offer a fresh perspective to anyone. Okay. Uh, and when I say anyone, specifically pastors. Um, theology students, the informed person in the pew that loves to read. Right. Um, that was that was my target audience. That that the average person in the pew could pick up the book, read it through, and not right. consult the endnotes. Right. And get a fairly good perspective on the Ephesian letter from the approach I'm taking. Right. And yet, uh, you know, people like my colleagues can also read it and go into the endnotes. Right. And see theologically what kind of frameworks was I drawing from and what I was thinking in behind the text and even in behind my translation as I was offering it in the book. Right. I'm just uh, glancing at uh, at it uh, as you're you're talking to me about it and it's very user-friendly. Uh, each chapter uh, Clean prose, not overly long paragraphs, uh, and then then all the, the the extra details one might want to know where mm -hmm. where the Greek word uh, where the Greek word you're referring to exactly. draws its meaning, what other commentators have influenced you. That's right. Uh, just uh, just very nice. So you you've intentionally tried to make this as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. Absolutely. Which sort of fits. The title of a new humanity. This is not for the elites. This is sort of for everyone, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> okay. So uh, you did your own translation on this. That's right. Uh, so why did you do that when there's a lot of good English translations out there? Maybe for some people, too many. Right. Why'd you produce another one? Why well, throw another one in the mix? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's a I guess it's the way I've always worked, Van, okay. uh, personally. I've always okay. worked from uh, the original texts. Uh, after my graduate studies, I, I specifically learned Hebrew and Greek, okay. so I could work out of Hebrew and Greek. And I guess I never... Uh, some of the minor reactions I've received, or few, very few, actually, are, you know, who are you to think that you could put out another translation? And that actually isn't the spirit of this at all. Okay. This was more out of my own uh, habit of reading the Bible, to try, wanting to get at the core understanding of these writers and paying attention to their language. And so what I wanted to do was not replace anything anybody's reading. I, I think th there's such good work in all the translations. Um, you know, and, and even... Even historically, as the KJV takes a little bit of bad rap, that sometimes the KJV is really good. Sure. 
Yeah. So uh, I'm not yeah. I'm not proposing uh, replacing. Yeah, yeah. I'm just offering another view. Sure. So as you're reading, you know, and we all have our favorite translations, right? Yeah. Um, New New Living Translation, the NIV, the ESV, they're, they're all out there. And what I'm saying is, just have another perspective here. Have another look, and just see what I did. And the reason I wanted wanted to do that was so that I could highlight what I saw Paul saying in the letter as I was going through. Well, you know, the great advantage for anybody reading this commentary is that obviously you're not working through somebody else's translation when the wording isn't exactly the way you'd want it and having to explain, well, they chose this route. Mm-hmm. You know, the Greek text that, you know, says this. Mm-hmm. At least they're not having to deal with any kind of disparity between commentary and translation. Mm -hmm. So when you produce your own, you're saying, this is the translation that makes sense to me. This is how I understand it, Mm -hmm. how I'm interpreting it. Mm -hmm. So here's how I would translate it, and the commentary will explain why. So certainly it has that major advantage to it, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are points in the book where I point out and explain in detail, why did I translate it this way? And and I was very careful, because I, I know that people would be asking the questions. So I just addressed it in the end notes and, and said, you know, here's, so you know what I'm thinking. Here's why I translated it that way when the NIV does it this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. No, I appreciate that. And uh, I, I did want to ask you why you did your own translation because for, for some, and it's certainly not my issue and it's not your issue, but for some, particularly if they don't have access to the ancient languages mm-hmm. that the Bible is originally written in, for some they're in this sort of awkward position of, trying to choose not simply what's a good translation, but maybe what they've been told is the official translation, is the inerrant translation. Right. And you've got some, some pretty uh, strong voices arguing for one English translation as opposed to another as the authentic word of God. Mm-hmm. And of course, for anyone who knows the ancient languages, you know that translation is always interpretive. And so yes. no English translation can ever say they've exhausted it. So I hear what you're saying. This is your approach. You're not trying Absolutely. to replace it. But Absolutely. this is your commentary. And this is how this is the work you did on the text to get there. So you've you've published it along with Absolutely. with your text. So, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, great. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecasts, podcasts produced by Masters College and Seminary. MCS Pentecasts are available online at mcs.edu and also through iTunes Podcasts. Masters College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at both undergrad and graduate levels. For more information on graduate courses offered through Masters Pentecostal Seminary in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at Masters Pentecostal Bible College in Peterborough, Canada, please visit mcs.edu.